He says, unless I'm convicted by what? Scripture. Unless I'm convicted by what God has said in the Bible, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Okay? So Luther was driving a stake in the ground. The true church should be guided by the Bible, by the Word of God. The Word of God is uh, the preeminent authority, not the words of popes. Okay? This is one of the uh, foundations of the Protestant Reformation. So the question was 500 years ago and still is for any church that would call itself Christian, what is your authority? On what basis do you say these things? Is it because some bishop or pope said it or some patriarch or some famous preacher in Nigeria? Um, some famous preacher in America? Some famous preacher in India? No. Our authority is the Bible. Any true church will tell you their authority, their final authority is the Bible. And we test everything else against the Bible. I love what uh, John MacArthur says about the Catholic Church. And I think it's true too of the Eastern Orthodox Church and really true of many Protestant churches these days. But he says, he says the Catholic Church uses the Bible, but they don't really need it. They just make stuff up. And if you know much about Catholic teaching, you realize there's, there's, there's huge swaths of it that does not come from the Bible. And even what comes from the Bible many times is wrong. They use the same words we use, but they have different definitions than the biblically literate Protestants. So, the Catholic Church was editing God, and we know that that's still going on today, not only, again, in the Catholic Church, but in other so-called Christian churches. Now, at ICM, if you've been here for a while, you realize what we do is we preach the Bible. We don't care what popes say. We don't care what patriarchs say. Famous preachers in Nigeria. Famous preachers in America. Now, I quote, if they say something good, I may quote them. I've never quoted a pope. I may quote a famous preacher um, from America. I mean, I've got two guys that I love. You know who they are. Uh, what were you really interested in in the Bible? Who, who cares at the end of the day? My opinion is worthless unless it, it's buttressed by this, unless it's flowing out of this. You, you should not pay any attention to me whatsoever. I could be another charlatan. I could be another false teacher, right? Remember what Paul said in Philippians, beware of the dogs and evil workers who preach a different gospel, right? I could be a dog or an evil worker. The only way you can know is if what I say to you, you can see here. This is our final authority. This is our only authority. That's what the Reformation was, was all about. So, I just want to say this because I love to say it, right? Okay, I got a sermon on the, on the podcast site. It's just called, you can go out there and search the Bible, okay? So there's a whole lot of stuff uh, I could tell you. I'm not going to take the time to tell you that tonight. But uh, I do love to say this. It's 66 books. It's written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents with documented, fulfilled prophecy, archaeologically substantiated, common storyline and theme with no historical or factual errors and no doctrinal contradictions. My seminary professor said, Go find another book like that. And I said, that would be impossible. 
And that's the point. It is a divine book. It has all the hallmarks and earmarks of being divine. There is no other book like the Bible. Period. If you cannot recognize the, the, uh, the divine origin of, of Scripture, then you're not really thinking about it very much. Just by virtue of the fact of what I said of how it came to be. So, Jim, why are you telling us all this? Because John 8, the story in John 8, you might as well open your Bibles or your electronic device, to John chapter 8, verse 1. Some of you will know if you have a study Bible, you may read something like this about John 7, 53, I think it is, through John 8, 11. You'll read something like this. And in your Bibles, it might be in brackets or on your electronic device. Is it in brackets? Does anyone have uh, this, this text in brackets in their Bible? Okay. What does it mean? It means this. You may have a footnote. It says, This story, though probably authentic, is omitted in many of the earliest manuscripts and may not have been originally part of the Gospel of John. So, what do we do about this? What do we say about this? Obviously, the evidence that argues for its inclusion is as strong or stronger than the evidence for its exclusion because here it is. It's in the Scripture. But what textual scholars are saying is this account probably was not in the original Gospel of John. Most conservative theologians would say to you it is most likely authentic, but it probably was not in the original Gospel. It probably was added sometime later. It doesn't mean it's not true. And it casts no aspersions or doubt on the, the uh, accuracy of the Bible that we have. In fact, what I want to say to you is, as you know, the Bible is the most scrutinized book in the world. <laughs> no other book is scrutinized or has been scrutinized like the Bible. But here's, here's the deal. There are two passages like this in the New Testament. The other one is at the end of Mark. Some of you know the, the last chapter of Mark. It's, a, it's in brackets too. And I love this about the Bible. Full disclosure. It's full disclosure. Some of you who know about the Quran, you know that the, the Quran has quite a sordid history. Uh, there, were, there was a time when there were many different copies floating around and um, the copies were gathered together and they, they tried to come up with simply one copy to be the official copy. I mean, it's quite scandalous for Islam. It's not widely known. If you want to know more about that, come see me and I'll, I'll direct you to a scholar about that. But the Bible's full disclosure. The, the full disclosure is, hey, we believe this is authentic, but it, we don't believe it was that John wrote it right here. And full disclosure. So we come to this. We come to this. Um, we ask these six questions of a text like this. Do these verses violate other scriptural truth? No. Is there compelling evidence to omit these verses? No. There's not compelling evidence to omit them. Do the verses corroborate other scriptural truth? Yes. Do the verses fit Jesus Christ? Yes. Do the verses fit the context and flow of the book? Yes. Do the verses fit the pattern of the Gospel of John? Yes. So, it's here in the Bible. In the sovereign providence of God, He's put it here. 
I don't want us to get overly concerned about some of the scholarly arguments. God has put this here for us. Okay? So, um, but I feel obligated to tell you these things so you're not ignorant of these things. So some wise guy comes up to you and says, that's not even in the, the original Gospel of John and cause you to wonder about it and not be able to respond adequately about it. So, I just wanted to share that with you. Full disclosure in the Bible. you got to love it, man. To me, it just um, it buttresses the reliability of Scripture. If you have any questions about the Bible, again, I have a sermon on the, on the, uh, on the podcast site. I'll be happy to sit and talk with you. Listen, I studied this stuff in seminary. You have an accurate copy of Scriptures in your lap. You have it. You have it. God has done an amazing thing to preserve His Word for His people. So please do not doubt what you have. And it is a gift from God. So, one of the repeated themes of John is Jesus Christ is God. It's one reason I find this particular text compelling because we, we for sure see His divinity in the text. We learn a lot about Him and we learn a lot about ourselves. Principally, you and I have a serious problem. We have the same problem this woman has. God is holy and we're not. This is a serious problem for every human being on the planet. So we'll see a sinner meet her Savior tonight. And it's a compelling compelling story. We are just like this woman. She is guilty and she knows it. So let's see what happens to a guilty sinner. And let's look at some of the more attractive attributes. Well, all of them are attractive, but let's look at a couple of His attributes. The, the attributes of Jesus Christ. First, let me pick up here. Verse 753. This is where the bracket begins. And everyone went to His home. So we... We studied this last week that the controversy about Jesus among the multitudes, uh, Nicodemus' dialogue with his colleagues here, and then it says, verse 53, and everyone went to his home. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. You say, Jim, why is this important? Who cares? Okay, this is the problem we have. We, we read over stuff like this, right? You just read over it. You don't even think about it. There's like 10 sermons here. And you say, Jim, how can there be 10 sermons here? Because this highlights the humility of Jesus, right? Everybody had a home to go to, but whom? What does Jesus say in Matthew 8? Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. So everybody in the temple, down to the janitor, okay? From the highest priest down to the guy that sweeps up, they all had a home to go to. Not God. God incarnate didn't have a home to go to. God incarnate went to the Mount of Olives. God incarnate slept on the ground. Okay? Do you understand? Can you appreciate the condescension of God to take on flesh and sleep on the ground. We just read over stuff like this. I want you to appreciate the humility 
of your Creator, the humility of your Redeemer, the, the humility of the One who will judge heaven and earth. <laughs> he goes to the Mount of Olives. He sleeps on the ground. He gets up the next morning. Spends time with His Father, no doubt. Has a meager breakfast. And goes back to the temple. The other thing you notice here is he has no front man. He has nobody working for him. He has nobody, you know, announcing his presence. Um, he just humbly shows up again at the temple. Listen, I want to challenge you as you read your Bibles to think about what you're reading. This is God. This is God. I heard it on a newscast. It's the first time I've heard it. I heard it on a newscast yesterday. What I've been saying to you for a couple of months now, the God who spoke two trillion galaxies into existence, the latest estimate, two trillion galaxies, not planets. I'm not talking about planets or stars. I'm talking about galaxies, two trillion. This is the God who spoke them into existence. He has nowhere to lay his head. He goes and sleeps on the ground on the Mount of Olives. And we know within six months, this God... This God-man will be nailed to a tree for my sin and for yours. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Okay, so I'm just going to ask you. I'm going to challenge you. I want you to go home and worship Him and praise Him for His condescension and His humility. Probably something you may never have praised Him for before. That infinite, almighty, eternal, omnipotent God took on flesh and became a man. Verse 2, chapter 8 of John, in the early morning, He came again into the temple, as I just said, and all the people were coming to Him, and He sat down and He began to preach. Again, we see the humility of God. He could have levitated as He taught. He could have written it. Uh, in the clouds, he could have had the stars spell it out. He could have had the crickets stitch it. He could have had the birds sing it. He could have had the frogs croak it. But he sits and he teaches like a man. This is God. Aren't we all guilty of just reading past this stuff? And not thinking deeply about this is God. This is who He is. He could have had a legion of angels sing it. But we see His humility. But next time He's seen by the world at large, it will not be this way. He will come as an awesome king and a righteous judge and all men will give Him His due. Every eye will see Him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having her in the, the midst, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Well, the first question I have is, where's the man? Right? <laughs> okay. Well, she's caught in the act. Well, where's the guy? Right? That's crazy. Anyway, verse five. Now, in the law of Moses, uh, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? 
And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. I'm going to stop right there. We'll pick up the rest of the verse here in just a moment. So verse 6 tells us that, tells us that these guys are up to no good. They're trying to entrap Jesus. You might think they would get a clue. They've been trying to arrest him for about four or five chapters and they have been unable to do so, but they think maybe now they can trick him with their words. Verse 6 tells us that the whole deal is a setup. While it was a Jewish custom to bring um, difficult legal problems to a leading rabbi, they weren't there with an honest question. They were there to try to entrap him. And here's the trap that they're setting. Most of you probably have already figured it out. If Jesus says no, don't stone her, he's abrogating Moses. He's setting Moses to the side. And the people obviously loved Moses. This would be a problem. If he says yes, stoner, um, he would be in contravention of Roman law. The Jews were not allowed to do this without Roman permission. So these guys think they have God incarnate in a trap. So let me just talk a few minutes about, just so you have a, a good biblical understanding about adultery in the Old Testament and the Jewish legal system. It was one of the three big sins uh, with idolatry and murder. God had a reason when He gave uh, the death penalty for a sin. Um, this was to educate His people, to set them apart from the pagan peoples in the area, and God instituted capital punishment for certain sins. God's Word reveals that the human body and the sex act and procreation is sacred to Him. It is sacred to God. It is only supposed to happen within the confines of marriage. This is the expressed will of God. To make sure the Jews understood that the sex act was uh, sacred in the eyes of God, God set up capital punishment for those who would violate that. Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22 Adultery was such a disregard for God, His law, and the dignity of the human body and was so destructive and devastating to the spouse and the children that God gave capital punishment for it. God doesn't call adultery an affair. You know what God calls it explicitly? He calls it evil. This is what God calls it. He calls it evil. You know, in our modern culture, we have so many um, uh, soft words for evil, don't we? That God explicitly condemns in His Word. So history tells us that at this time in the first century, the, the, the religious leaders no longer enforce the death penalty for adultery. So we see that all the more we see the scam in this, right? They didn't even enforce it at this time. So these religious leaders, they don't care about the law. They don't care about justice. They don't care about due process. They don't care about this woman. They just want to trick Christ. So here they are, rocks in hand, blood in their eyes, trying to rush Jesus into a hasty decision. Let's finish verse 6 here of John 8. But Jesus stooped 
down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. So, as you might suspect, down through the years, people have always speculated about what is the Lord doing here. And there's a whole lot of speculation. Some of it's quite goofy. There's a nuance in the Greek here. It's not the normal word to write. It, it's a word that connotes to record. And some smart theologians have suggested that Jesus is writing down the sins of all of these men. <laughs> okay? In the dirt. He's writing down the sins of these men with rocks in their hands. Okay? It makes sense to me. I don't know if that's what He's doing or not. It makes sense to me. Uh, it sounds like something Jesus would do. And here's what I know. When I get in judgment mode, God reminds me of my sin. Right? When I want to pick up the metaphorical rock, He reminds me of my sin. This is something God is always faithful to do. So, it sounds like something He would do. It sounds quite uh, credible to me. And there's a distinction here that's important. Particularly as a pastor, but, but really as, as, any, as a Christian, we don't judge anybody. That's God's business. But we do love people enough to call sin, sin. If we have a brother or sister who's in sin, we tell them, God says this about what you're doing. It is a sin. And people want to say, well, you're judging me. No, I'm not judging you. I'm telling you what God says. I'm loving you. You know, in the world today, it's like hate speech. To confront somebody with their sin, it's called hate speech many times. Well, no, that's the world for you. It's love speech. Right? This is love speech. You're drinking from a poison well. What I'm offering you is living water that we talked about last week. I'm offering you eternal life in Christ. This sin will not satisfy you. Jesus Christ will satisfy you forever. Right? This is love speech. So don't ever shrink back. You, you lovingly share with the world what God says about sin. You lovingly share it. We don't pass judgment. God will do that. But we, tell, we love people enough to tell them what God has said. We call sin, sin. We say that it's sin. I've had a number of men confess adultery to me, right? And it's evil. And I tell them, it's evil. It's sin. It's not an affair. You know, they want to tell me, well, I had a tryst or I had an affair. It's sin. It's evil. You, gotta, you, you have to, again... Tell people what God says about it. And let the weight of it fall on them. God means for the weight of His Word to fall on people. So they will what? Run to the Savior. We all need to understand we are this woman. Every human being is this woman. We are all guilty. If not physical adultery, what? Spiritual adultery. We are all guilty. We are all guilty. The most loving thing you can do is talk to your friends frankly and candidly about sin. I know it's unpopular. And we talked about it last week, right? When you talk like this, controversy is going to come. You're going to always be swept up in controversy. We saw it last week. Jesus, everywhere He went, there was controversy. And if you speak in the world, there will be controversy. As you speak God's truth. 
in the world. So we're not the sin police. We love people enough to share the truth. Verse 7 and 8, But when they persisted in asking Him, He straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, He stooped down and He wrote on the ground. So (laughs) He's blown them away again. They keep trying to do this all the way through the Gospels and they obviously, they're no match for God incarnate. So the answer was perfect on so many levels. He did not set the Mosaic Law aside. He did not challenge Roman authority. He did not minimize the woman's sin. The net effect here is that Jesus exalts Himself above the law. He's the author of it and also He is the arbitrator of it, right? And He establishes that righteousness in the Bible, that righteousness is established by grace. True human righteousness only comes through sovereign grace. It doesn't come. You can go read Paul. He was the perfect Jew. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2. He says, it's all tongue. I've met Christ. I must have the grace of Christ. And this is one reason this account is is in the text. Even if it has brackets around it. It's a picture of the grace of God. Amen? Because you're an adulterer, I'm an adulterer, and we need Him. We need a Savior. We need grace. We need grace. You need grace more than you need anything else. You say, no, Jim, I have to have food and water. That's more important. Really, at the end of the day, it's not more important. You need the grace of God. We all need the grace of God. We know about what Jesus said about adultery, right? What did He say? He says, if you've lusted for a woman in your heart, what? You're already guilty. Every guy standing there is guilty. Right? Every guy standing there with a rock in his hand is guilty. He has lusted for some woman. No doubt, many. They're all guilty. So we know how God feels about adultery. You don't even have to do the physical act and you're guilty. If you've lusted for a woman. So these guys with these rocks in their hands... He just indicted them. Every last one of them. Um, yeah, the law. Let me, let me just share James 2.10 with you. You guys know this great verse, I'm sure. Forever who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he becomes guilty of what? All of it. These guys are guilty of breaking all the law, just like you, just like me. You can't get to God by law-keeping. You can't get there by law-keeping. It's the whole point of the Old Testament. There's only one, one man who's ever kept the law. His name is Jesus Christ. No other man has ever done it. You can't get to God through law-keeping. No one can. Romans 3.19, under the law, every mouth is closed and the whole world is accountable to God. If you try to come to God by law-keeping, Infinite wrath will land on you forever. If you try to come to God by religion, infinite wrath will land on you forever. You must come by faith in Christ the Savior and receive His grace 
and His mercy. So, you are this woman. I am this woman. My favorite preacher in the States, John MacArthur, he's this woman. And, and John Piper, he's this woman. Every preacher and deacon and elder you ever known, they're this woman. We're all adulterers. It's why it's in the text. <laughs> I have no doubt it's why it's in the text. God means for it to be in the text. Okay, verse 9. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, the wiser ones, I presume. And he was left alone and the woman with the woman where she had been in the midst. So every self-righteous Jew dropped their rock and they left. So what was the purpose of the law? God tells us in Galatians, right? You guys know, right? What, what's the purpose of the law? Paul says something very specific. What is it supposed to do? Huh? Okay, that's good. There's another truth that he reveals. It's your tutor to drive you to Christ. The law is a tutor. You're supposed to understand by the law that you can't keep it, right? N nobody can keep it. Particularly how, how Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Um, we cannot keep it, Paul says. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by what? Church going. No. By what? Faith. Faith. What a perfect text for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It's in part, large part what the Reformation was about. The Catholic Church says, it's about doing all this stuff. You've got to do all this stuff. And maybe you'll get in, but you've got to go to purgatory first. Of course, none of that's biblical. You can't find it in the Bible. But that's what they say. Martin Luther says it's all by faith. It's all by faith. I think it's, perf I think it's providentially perfect that we landed on this chapter on this particular Sunday. So these men came... Uh, to trap Jesus in a dilemma, but He showed them their dilemma. Their dilemma is they are condemned before God. They are condemned before God. They have no way out. So I'm going to stop and ask you to feel this for a minute. Do you, do you, can you feel what this woman feels? Have you ever been caught in sin that embarrassed you and exposed you and made you vulnerable and in a sense emotionally and psychologically and spiritually undressed you before everyone. You are naked before your family, your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues. You are naked. Everyone knows you're evil. She was utterly exposed in her premeditated evil against God. And here's the truth, you and I are as well, if we are not in Jesus Christ. So, verses 10 and 11, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Where are all the guys with rocks in their hands? And by the way, where's the man? Bring him on over here. Let me talk to him too. Did no one condemn you? And she said, No, Lord. Pretty important that she says, Lord, right? And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on. Sin 
no more. So, in his mouth, the word woman is a word of respect and tenderness. He called his mother woman over in John chapter 2. So, we see the mercy and compassion and grace of Jesus. We've seen his humility, we've seen his wisdom, and now we are seeing his mercy and his compassion and his grace. Can you imagine her relief? Can you imagine it? Of course you can. <laughs> if you're a Christian, you, you know exactly how she feels. You were guilty too. But not anymore. If you're in Christ, not anymore. You have received sovereign grace. If you're a Christian, you understand everything she feels. You know what I love about this text? It was her worst day ever. But Jesus turned it into what? Her best day ever. This is what God does. <laughs> okay? This is what God does. She could not have had a worse day till she ran into Jesus Christ. She could not have had a better day after she ran into Him. Don't you love the Bible? Don't you love the Gospel? Don't you love the grace and mercy and compassion of God? Is Jesus condoning her sin? Is He winking at her sin? Is He saying her sin doesn't matter? No, no, no. How do we know that? Oh, in about six months, He'll spill His blood for that sin, right? He's not minimizing the sin. The sin must be paid for. It must be atoned for. God's wrath will fall on sin. This is what God says. You say, Jim, I don't really like it when you say that. Well, I'm just telling you what God says. It doesn't matter if I like it, and it doesn't really matter if you like it. My job is to tell you what it says. If I'm wrong, prove me wrong. I'll change my sermon. I never have a problem changing my sermon if I'm wrong. Okay? I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem not doing my job. God is not condoning her sin. He will be arrested and accused, publicly humiliated, ridiculed, taunted, spat upon, beaten, scourged, stripped naked, and crucified for her sin. Could He reveal any... Could He reveal... <laughs> in a more profound way, how serious it is. So, he says sin no more. So will she be sinless? Did, you know, she, she calls Him Lord, so the presumption here is she's come to Him by faith in a saving way. Will she become sinless now that she's a Christian? Even though the Word doesn't exist yet? Of course not. What is, you know, Paul talks about this in depth. Romans chapter 7. We all struggle with sin in our lives. But what does the real Christian do with it? And how does she feel about it? How do you feel about it in your sin? Well, if you're really in love with Christ and you're really in relationship with Christ, you'll hate it. <laughs> you know, the most miserable person on the planet is the Christian. The real one, I know there are a lot of pseudo-Christians, but the real one who's in sin, he, is the most, he or she is the most miserable person in the world. 
I understand about this. I can give you a testimony about it. Some of you could could do. It is miserable. Will she sin? She'll sin. But we know what to do with sin, right? What does first John tell us? We forsake it, we confess it. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us. So we are this woman. The only question is, have you received the forgiveness she's received in Jesus? Have you come to Him by faith and received Him as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, I invite you to come and do that even now. Come and talk to me if you would like. If you have questions about it. If you have done that, I invite you to live your life with glad, reckless joy. You had a problem. You had an insurmountable problem. And now it's gone. You now have peace with God. That's what the text, when, when, when it talks about the peace of God, it's peace with God. You a sinner, you an adulterer, a spiritual adulterer, you have peace with God. You've been reconciled to God. Jesus Christ has made, made propitiation for your sin. So, it's providentially perfect that this text falls on Reformation Sunday. This text beautifully illustrates in part what the Reformation was and is all about. It's about a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and faith in Him for the forgiveness of sins. The Catholic Church was not only corrupt in raising their money to finance St. Peter's Basilica, they had utterly corrupted the biblical gospel and continued to do it. Say, Jim, this is not very politically correct. I know. We don't do that here. If I can be politically correct, okay. But it's about the last consideration I have. Okay? Again, at ICM, we're just going to say what it is. And you, you decide, right? You decide if I'm a false teacher. So, they had utterly corrupted the biblical gospel. They had piled a ton of religion, religious works, and duties on top of the simple message of, that Protestants hold dear. And what is our message? That the true Christian is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone. Basta! Right? We don't need to do sacraments. We don't need to do pilgrimages. We don't have to talk to Mary. I don't need a saint. I don't need anyone to get me out of purgatory. It does not exist. I don't have to do penance. I don't have to do public confession. These sacraments are not required for salvation from the Bible. That is only from the Catholic Church. It is a false gospel. It is a false gospel. Roman Catholicism is a different gospel. It is not only unbiblical, it is anti-biblical. Roman Catholicism is a bizarre assortment of traditions, semi-pagan rituals, superstitions, incoherent doctrines that, that often border on the absurd. If you have questions about the Roman Catholic Church, I have a great booklet. I, I'm not going to give you this one. <laughs> I'm down to one. But I'll give you the yeah, 
Facts about the Roman Catholic. Okay, you say, Jim, I, I don't want to study. You don't have to study the whole, the whole thing. You don't have to go study all the Catholic writings. They're voluminous. You can read this, and you'll, you'll have a good understanding. So if you want the name of this, I'll get it to you. So please, if you have questions, let me know. You know, my prayer for you is that by the time you leave here, you'll have a good sense about how to judge pseudo-Christianity and true Christianity. And it always comes back to this. It always comes back to this. <laughs> it always comes back to this. Is the church you're presently in, as you move on, is it, is it opening the Bible? Is it preaching the Bible to you? Is, it, is the message, does, it, the, the, does the message have integrity with what God has said in the Bible? Then that's a good church. <laughs> if you're hearing all kinds of goofy stuff, that you can't find anywhere in the Bible, you need to run. No church is better than a false church. It's what the Reformation was about. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as revealed to us in the Scriptures alone. It's who we are. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this anniversary. We thank you for brave men who took a stand, who were subject to death, and many did die for the truth. We thank you that you've preserved it for us. We thank you that you've given us the Spirit of God that we might rightly divide it. Lord, I pray You would give us a spirit of love and compassion that we might share the truth in the world, that we might help our Catholic friends understand the issue of authority, biblical, scriptural authority, that we could help them to see that salvation is indeed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we might be a vehicle to get the burden of works and the curse of self-righteousness off. So we ask for your help, Lord, that we be faithful in these things. And thank you for this beautiful picture. <laughs> How you saved an adulterer like me with love and grace and mercy and compassion. We love you, Lord. We praise you. It's in your matchless and wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and I'll read a benediction and we'll be dismissed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. God bless. See you next time.